Hey folks, thanks for tuning in. Today is episode 42, titled, Not Peace, But a Sword. Today is one of my favorite sections of verses in the Bible. <clears throat> it's so rich with information and wisdom. And of course, it's God talking, right? So if God's talking, it's going to be a wealth of knowledge and, and information and wisdom. But what today tells us is how to prioritize our love for Jesus and the importance of taking up our cross and following Him. It actually also brings psychology into the realm of conversation. Much people don't think psychology is in the Bible, much less the word psyche, but it most certainly is. We will get into the details of that, but first let's go over today's set of verses. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 39 says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is unworthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. First, we need to understand that the sword Christ brings is not a literal sword for physical violence. Okay, The sword he brings is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, not only in its written form, Scripture, but also in its incarnate form, Jesus Christ himself. And we know this because Ephesians, Paul wrote Ephesians, and what he said to the church of Ephesus was, our battle is not of the flesh. Our battle, our battle is not the physical flesh, let's say. It's a spiritual battle. Now, does the flesh get in the way? Is the flesh weak? And do we have to struggle against our flesh? Absolutely. And are there times to defend our loved ones and innocent bystanders and our friends as well or family? Yes, absolutely. But that's not the sword Christ is referring to. The sword he's referring to has to do with the conflict that arises from commitment to Christ and his holy scripture. The conflict that arises from becoming a Christian and committing our lives to Christ can set people at odds with one another within the same household. So that's, that's the division in a home that can manifest as a consequence of becoming a Christian. Now regarding the love we're supposed to have for Christ, it's clear that we must love him above all else. Nothing must come before him. Not the love for a wife, not the love for a husband, not the love for our children, not the love for our careers, and not the love for any material possessions. Now, if anyone loves a husband, or a wife, or their children, or their career, or their stuff, more than Christ, that makes them unworthy of him. And this is absolutely terrifying. Every time I read it, it puts my mind in check immediately. Because, think about the Apostle Thomas when he went through a spiritual crisis. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. So in some sense, it's... It's harder and easier to be a Christian now and back then. It's just a different journey, let's say. And there's a reason Paul says one aspect of faith is conviction of the unseen. So we can't actually see Jesus Christ sitting next to us with our eyes. I'm, I'm suppose, I, I should say, I suppose people have. I'm not saying that Christ can... Or I, I'm not going to say Christ won't reveal himself as to be seen, but it's not something, we're not just hanging out with 
Jesus in his flesh like the apostles did. So there's an element of conviction of the unseen that we have to have as Christians in 2022 that the apostles had the privilege of of seeing firsthand. <clears throat> now let's talk about one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I'm going to read it one more time. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So here I must remind everyone again that God's word is written in Greek and Hebrew. That is the Bible. The English translation of the Bible is not the ultimate authority in our lives. The ultimate authority in our lives is the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Now you may be thinking, how in the world do you expect someone to read the original Bible? Well, the answer to that is I don't. Scholars have done the work for you, and you can easily access them and study them at blueletterbible.org. It's been transliterated for you, so you can see the original words, and then you can do Google searches on what those words mean in the original context. So we're going, we're going to do a little bit of that today. We're going to dive into the Greek regarding the verse I just read, Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. The original Greek word that was translated into the English word life is psyche. That's not actually how it's pronounced, though. That's modern English. It's pronounced psyche. I'm just going to pronounce that once, and I'm going to stick with psyche the rest of the time. The word psyche in the Bible means the breath of life or the soul. This is why the word psyche is translated into both the word life and the word soul, depending on the verse it's used. The word psyche by biblical definition means the seat of feelings, desires, and affections. So for those of you who don't know, the word psychology was actually formed from combining two words, psyche, excuse me, psyche and logos, so psyche and logos. Now we'll talk about the logos in the Gospel of John, but today let's just stick with psyche. Regarding the psyche or even the human psyche, Christ first tells us that those who find their life will lose it. What he's saying here is when a person in life initially finds the seat of feelings, desires, and affections, and it's not of Christ, then they will in fact lose their souls. And this unfortunately means to perish or to die in hell. So consider this something akin to the Freudian development of the ego. So let's say someone's raised in a worldly or secular home, they reach the age 25, their brain and prefrontal cortex are completely developed, and they aren't a Christian. It's those people who find their initial life that will lose it. Christ goes on to say that when a person in life is reborn through updating their worldview, and they come to understand Christ is their only hope for salvation, it's that specific understanding that will change or transform the seat of feelings, desires, and affections, but for his sake. And that allows a person to find eternal life through Christ. So this means we must lose our initial set of feelings and desires and affections, or the initial ego, and we have to find a new way of life regarding our feelings, desires, and affections. Now let's touch on ego briefly. Ego is not arrogance. Though people sometimes use it in that context, ego is not arrogance at all. It's the idea of who you think you are or who I think I am in relationship to the social world. It's an idea based on our perception of ourselves. So if you were raised in a Christian home, maybe your ego is that you perceive yourself as a child of God, a servant of the Most High, a priest subordinate to the high priest, or 
the shepherd of a flock. All of which is great, and that means you don't have to undergo psychological death and rebirth if you stay on track. You just have to keep growing in Christ. However, if your initial psyche or ego is worldly, there needs to be a psychological death and rebirth regarding not only your ego or who you think you are, but also your frame of perception or what the apologists call your worldview. So what Christ is referring to in a more simplistic way is just psychological death and rebirth in him. It means we must give up our old life and our old frame of perception and pursue a new life and a new frame of perception in him. And if we don't do that, we will not have eternal life. We must make Jesus our primary seat of focus for our affections, desires, and feelings. Now, here is where I want to talk about evangelism and kind of touch on the three branches of the Christian faith, which is Protestantism, Catholicism, and Orthodox Christianity. And these are not my opinions. These are things that subject matter experts in their fields have said. So I have heard Orthodox priests and Catholic priests say their faith isn't, their, I should say their wheelhouse is not evangelism. Their wheelhouse is not taking people off the street through evangelism and pulling them into the church. Where the uh, Catholics and the Orthodox Christians thrive, or what their wheelhouse is, is growth and spiritual discipline. And sure, you can argue some dogmatic differences between the faiths, but they're much better with spiritual discipline and acting out their faith. Now, the Protestant wheelhouse, however, is evangelism. So uh, the Protestants have done an excellent job with going out in the streets and sharing the good news with people to bring them into a church, to bring them into the fold. So if, if someone's going to, whether they're Catholic, Christian, or Protestant, if they're going to practice evangelical good news spreading, there's really only one message on the streets that Christians should be offering secular or worldly people. And that is that Jesus loves you, he died on the cross so he could have eternal life, and he wants to have a relationship with you. That is the good news. That is the good news. But, and this is where things get difficult. This is not, this is where the Catholics and Orthodox Christians are stronger than the Protestant Christians. And again, these are not my opinions. These are opinions of scholars. Once you accept the gospel, the good news, in some sense, then there comes bad news or tough news, the difficult news. And that is that after you accept the gospel, after you accept the good news, now you have to die for Christ. So just as Christ died for you, now you have to die for him. And what that means is you have to give up your life, your desires, your affections, your perceptions, your will, your mind, all of that has to, be, has to die and be reborn. The same way Christ died and was resurrected, we must die and be reborn and grow in a whole new way. And it's, it's brutal because there's so much of us that are sinful. There's a lot of us that carry, well, all of us carry a sinful nature rather. And there's so much of us that has to go that's unworthy of Christ. And that's what ties into the message right above, or I should say the verse right above Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. This is verse 38, where he says, 
Those who do not take up their cross and follow me are unworthy of me. So that's where all of this ties together. After the good news comes the tough news, and that means it's time to pick up your cross. Now, this lifelong process of making Christ our primary aim is no easy task. It requires constant effort to struggle against sin, to carry our cross, and follow Him. Now, our cross can come in many ways. Our cross can be temptation, it could be suffering, or it could be sin. And sometimes it's the scars of sin. The scars of sin. Vodi Baca made a good point. Women who become Christians who had an abortion before, they're going to carry the scars of that experience with them forever. Maybe someone committed adultery. There's going to be scars that are carried forever. Maybe someone's committed murder. Imagine an inmate spending 30 years in prison. He gets out and, and someone evangelizes to them and they accept the good news. They're, and they're like, how can I, how could I be redeemed? I've murdered someone. And they're going to probably carry the guilt or carry the scars of that sin forever. And that's what it means to struggle against sin and to carry our cross and follow him. So it can come in many forms. And there's no doubt there's no doubt that we will stumble and fall on this journey, but the question is, will we get back up? Judas decided not to get back up. Peter decided to get back up. So who are you going to be? We're all sinners. The question is, are you going to be Judas or are you going to be Peter? That's the question. I heard an Orthodox priest say once, angels never fall, demons fall and never get back up, and Christians fall and get back up. That's what makes Christians different. They don't stop fighting. They don't stop struggling against sin. They don't stop carrying their cross. They may stumble, but they get back up and they keep striving towards the kingdom of heaven. And that's what the purpose of grace for is grace is for. Grace is for improvement. It's for our improvement. Just like Paul says in Romans and in Titus, the purpose of grace is for our improvement to honor and glorify our Lord. Now, let me ask you this. If the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all in our corner, rooting for us to overcome temptation, to overcome suffering, and to overcome sin, what obstacles can we not overcome? That's all we have for today, folks. I hope everyone has a great day. Fight the good fight. God bless.